Hi, this is Andrea Martin, and you are listening to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre. And we're once again recording at Nutmeg with our engineer, Frank Verderosa. Our guest this week is a producer, author, actor, Emmy-winning writer, and Oscar-nominated director. He started out his performing career as a member of the San Francisco-based comedy troupe, The Committee, and went on to write and perform in popular variety shows and situation comedies, such as The Glenn Campbell Good Time Hour, The Flip Wilson Special, The George Burns Comedy Week, The Ken Berry Wow Show, Chico and the Man, (laughs) All in the Family, The Odd Couple, The Bob Newhart Show, and of course the groundbreaking and rule-breaking Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, for which he was awarded an Emmy for Outstanding Achievement in Comedy. He also wrote the feature films Dr. Detroit, and the Richard Pryor vehicle, Which Way Is Up, directed the Ringo Starr comedy, Caveman, and Oscar-nominated short, The Absent-Minded Waiter, and appeared in movies, MASH, The Long Goodbye, Johnny Dangerously, and Clueless, and of course, in a pair of iconic films that he also happened to write. Steve Martin's The Jerk and a little picture called Jaws. (laughs) (laughs) He's also the screenwriter of the sequels, Jaws 2 and Jaws 3, and the author of a best-selling book, The Jaws Log an indispensable production guide and behind-the-scenes look at the making of one of Hollywood's greatest adventure films. (sighs) Please welcome to the show a man of many talents and the artist formerly known as Iron Balls, (laughs) Carl Gottlieb. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. I'm going to... It's always interesting to put, you know, on, on your resume, you know, uh, the jerk part of Iron Balls McGinty. Yeah. <laughs> Is it on the resume as Iron Balls McGinty? It, it, if, if I still had a resume, yeah. It <laughs> it's on the there. IMDb <laughs> page. Yeah. As yeah, Iron Balls McGinty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, and before that, we turn the mic on, you started to say you had a Pat McCormick story, and that's something... <laughs> We can never wait. With. You know, I took a wild chance that that Carl, who's who been around and knows everybody in Hollywood, would know Pat McCormick, yes. and we hit pay dirt. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, 
you know, <clears throat> after his stroke, he went uh, he went to live in the motion picture home up in Calabasas, you know, uh, and <clears throat> he was a resident there, and he had lost his speech. As a result of the stroke, he couldn't speak. He had aphasia. <clears throat> and they put him in a room. Uh, he shared a room with Stanley Kramer, the great director. And Stanley oh, yes. Kramer was at the at the motion picture home because he was in an in advanced state of senile dementia. So Jack Riley and some of the guys went up to visit Pat at the home, and then they came back to the you know farmers market where this the, that particular crowd used to meet for donuts and coffee uh, once a week, and everybody said, "Well, you know, how, how's Pat doing up at the home?" And uh, Jack said, "Well." Um, Pat can't talk and Stanley Kramer can't think. So the two of them get on great. They just growl at each other all day long. <laughs> <laughs> Was it- so I, I met uh, uh, Kat, uh, Kat Kramer, who's uh, Stanley Kramer's daughter. And I said, you know, this is the story I heard. And, you know, it's, I, I've told it. But now that I've, I've got you here, you know, you're Stanley Kramer's daughter. You were, at, you, know, you were there. She said, no, absolutely true. He and Pat just, you know. Got on great as roommates because you know Pat, Pat couldn't talk and Dad couldn't think. So I, I heard it was, was it Ronnie Shell who told us that they walked in. Uh, that was the Army's Army's guy guys yeah. <clears throat> and Pat and Ronnie Shell or somebody walked in the room, saw Stanley Kramer and said, "Pat, you finally got a meeting." Yes. <laughs> <laughs> on 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 the junket to uh, 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 San Francisco for the movie uh, with, with Chevy Chase and Goldie Hawn. Oh, foul play. Uh, foul play. They had chartered a plane. It was you know, the heyday of Warner Brothers, I think. They chartered a plane, and the whole cast was going up, and the drinks were flowing, and Pat stood up in the aisle and picked up Billy Barty, who's also in the cast. <laughs> picked up Billy Barty and held him and said, I'd like to thank the members of the Academy. <laughs> <laughs> Now, and it was, we never it was run Pat out of Pat McCormick stories. And it was Pat McCormick who said, uh, you know, somebody asked him for directions. You know, how do you get to uh, Malibu? He said, oh, you, you take Sunset down to PCH, and then you turn right and go, go until you hit Pat, uh, until you hit Ben Vereen. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's one, one story. If you haven't heard it, we'll move on. <laughs> Are you familiar with the Pat McCormick helicopter story? I don't think so. No. Oh, then I'll tell you about it later. <laughs> okay. it'll, take, it'll take up yeah, too much show. Yeah. But we'll tell, we'll tell you after we wrap. And so you, are, well, now you're credited as having written the screenplay, Jaws. How, how did that come about? Well, um, uh, I was friends with Spielberg. We had the same agent. Mike Medavoy was our agent. And he was constantly pairing us up to go out and sell, you know, Pitches. We'd come up with a pitch. Do we go out? Mike would set up a meeting. We'd go take the meeting. And we'd never sell a pitch because Stephen was locked in to direct whatever it is we sold. And at that point, he hadn't directed any movies. He had just directed television. So nobody wanted to take a chance on him as a director. So we couldn't sell a feature script. But I acted in two of his movies, his television movies that he did. I did... Oh yeah, you're in something evil and uh, something and savage evil and the, the savage report. Savi- yes. The savage, right? And uh, so you know we were acquainted. He uh, he lived in Laurel Canyon. I lived down on Gardner Street in Hollywood. We very often our paths would cross, 
And he went off to do Sugarland Express, which was his first feature. And it was very well received critically, but tanked at the box office. And Stephen, who has a really good career sense, figured, okay, I got to do a popcorn movie. I got to find a popular movie to direct. So on the desk at Zanuck and Brown's office, he saw the galleys for uh, Jaws, Peter eventually novel. It was the, they had optioned it in pre-production, in, in pre, pre-publication. So he looked at it and said, oh, I, this is something I could do. And they said, yes, Zanuck and Brown said, yes, this is something you could do. So Stephen called me and said, look, I'm going to be doing this movie. It shoots on location. Uh, maybe you should be in it. You know, we'll, we'll find a part for yourself and uh, you'll be there for the run of the picture. And we, you can help with improvisation and do some stuff with the uh, local actors who I have to hire. So, Because uh, so you I, had an improv background. Yeah, yeah. So, so and, and comedy. You know. Right, sure. So, and, and Stephen wanted to not make it a, a straight-ahead horror flick. So we, uh, 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 I went through universal casting. I got the part of Meadows, the publisher of the newspaper. And then uh, about three weeks before we started shooting, uh, I get a call from Stephen. I'm at the Bel Air Hotel with Zanuck and Brown, I showed them your memo because he had sent me a copy of the script with a note on the cover saying "eviscerate it." So I had sent him some notes on the script. Some some were accurate and some were you know less useful. But he had shown the memo to Zanuck and Brown. They said, "Well, let's have him in here." I came in. We talked about the script. It started out to be bagels and locks on a Sunday morning. I didn't leave until it was dark and it was like after tea time. And we had we had like brunch and tea and then I and then they said, "Well, maybe we'll you'll." put you on to do a dialogue polish. You can go, you will hire you as a writer too. At that point, I was a story editor on The Odd Couple. I was, you know, I had a network TV job. But in those days, you know, if you could get out of television and into features, you would. You'd you'd grab that opportunity. So uh, Monday, they made an offer. Monday afternoon, we accepted. Tuesday, I was on a plane with Stephen. We flew to Boston where he was casting extras. And three weeks after, or two and a half weeks after that, we started shooting the movie having taken the script apart and not completely replaced all the material yet because there wasn't time. So I wrote the first, you know, the first scenes that were on the schedule, I wrote those first. And then I just had to write ahead of the schedule as we were shooting the movie. And uh, it's kind of great for a writer to be doing a production rewrite on the set because there's nobody to rewrite you. I mean, you know, this is, it's too late. Once you know, once you turn in your pages, the next day they're shooting them and there's, there's that. And then there's, there was the terrible realization that I had to cut my own part because the editor of the paper was less and less important (laughs) to the story as, as, as the script evolved, my part got smaller and it was, you know, that, that's, no writer should be asked. No writer actor should be asked to do that. It's cruel to cut your own part, but it was for it was for the better. Right, of course, kill the babies, for, right? Yes, it was for the greater good. Right. So, but on the release prints, when the picture first came out, the credits, you know, it was Scheider, Dreyfus, and Shaw, Jaws, with Carl Gottlieb, Lorraine, Gary, and Murray Hamilton. I'd like big co-star billing, and then you know. Ten years later, it was I was no longer on that title card because my character was less and less. <laughs> right. Well, Meadows but is still I, in there. He's still prominent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's still he's still there, and I still get residual checks as, as an actor as well as the residual checks as a writer. And, and uh, the fish movie is uh, the gift that keeps on giving. It's always Shark Week somewhere. Yeah, true. 
And um, it's funny, nowadays, I mean, the definition of blockbuster is Jaws and the definition of powerhouse director, Spielberg. Yeah. But back then, it was nothing like that. No, the the, uh, uh, Universal's high hopes for that year, 74, that year they were betting it all on Hindenburg and Airport 75. Uh, and which tied up all the special effects at the studio, which is why we got to make, we get an independent contractor to build the shark because the studio was overwhelmed. They couldn't, they couldn't build the shark in time. The Hindenburg with George C. Scott. Oh yes. Yeah, doesn't, and <laughs> imagine looking back. Not, yeah. e- not exactly a big monster hit. No, <laughs> no, no. So, no, no. Uh, and, and, and Jaws was intended to be kind of, you know, a popcorn summer movie oh it was always that and it was only after the first paid preview first two paid previews where the audiences went nuts that the sid scheinberg says you know what let's open this on a lot of screens and at that time that was kind of a revolutionary concept didn't you say they opened it in the second run theaters first that they they, yeah. they didn't? well we we didn't well it was a first they were first run theaters but they weren't the good ones if you they know LA, the good ones. Yeah. Uh, in la we were at uh a, the, on, on east of Vine, it was the World Theater. Now it's, it's something mm, else. Right. It was it was east of Vine, uh, and in Westwood we had one of those crummy UA houses. We didn't. We weren't at the Westwood or the Bruin. You know the two right, 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 or Westwood the Cinerama theaters. Dome. Yeah, or so any we, of the good we, ones. We, we were in like ordinary theaters, uh, and then, and and to Lou Wasserman's credit, he says the best word of mouth for a movie is there's lines and you can't get in. So let's you know let's open it wide, but let's not go too wide. So it opened in what was then a revolutionary 450 screens, and then later, when it became obvious that the film wasn't going to stop, uh, they expanded it to seven or eight hundred screens. The days before multiplexes, when there were lines oh, around yes. the block to see a movie, we're both old enough, obviously, to to remember Jaws Mania. Yeah, and, and that was, that summer, the, the, you know, it was it, it was, was it was happening. And, it's a cultural phenomenon. And and what what did you you read the book obviously yeah I read the book and I read the draft you know the because Peter Benchley wrote a draft of the screenplay and it was I, I guess it wasn't good I think it was a way to give him more money for the book rights they said oh and you can write the screenplay so he wrote the first draft of the screenplay and Zanuck and Brown realized oh this guy is not a screenwriter I mean he's barely a novelist but he's he's uh, uh, at that time in his career so. Uh, they got a guy, a writer named Howard Sackler, who was a, a real screenwriter. He wrote Great White Hope. He wrote Grey Lady Down. Yeah. He was a real screenwriter, but he was kind of faithful to the book and, and didn't like an okay adaptation. But it was a, the the style of the of the script. Well, the only thing I can tell you about the, that script, that draft, which is the draft I worked off of, uh, was that it made sense to cast Jan Michael Vincent as Hooper and Charlton Heston as Quint, you know, f- for yeah. that script. Right. And the know. love triangle with, with, uh, with Brody's wife was still intact. Yeah. Well, it was still intact. So when we started filming and we saw, you know, Dreyfus and Lorraine Gary, there's such like a nice Hamish peep couple, right. you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we couldn't, you know, it was impossible to think of him cuckolding, the Roy Scheider character. So that, that subplot went out the window along with the mayor's connection to the mafia and the right, real estate right, developers that, who that wanted, too. you know, there's a whole lot of crap that had to go. 
So was it was mostly the- mostly a question of pruning all the underbrush and just getting down to the story of three guys and a fish. I've heard you say that there's no original Jaws script. People claim there is, and you and you say there may be some edited versions floating around, but there's no there's no, the only, there's no true original that exists. No, the the closest that it comes to it is, in, I, there was like ten copies that the the uh, Stevens' uh, personal assistant on the film and also the the Apprentice editor was um, Verna Fields' son, Rick Fields. So he took the lined script, you know, with all the script supervisor's notes in it and the extra writing that I did for post-production, I wrote, you know, dialogue for looping and ADR and, the, and it took all of Joe Alves's uh, storyboard sketches. Cause the whole third act, all the men against the sea scenes were basically storyboard. There was no script. There wasn't a script that says the shark, you know, swims left to right and Quint fires a harpoon at him. It was just storyboarded that way. Interesting. So, the, so they shot the film from storyboards. The, the, all the dialogue had already been filmed. But it, it, it was just, uh, uh, there's that big, heavy, bound, and it's nicely bound with the Jaws logo on the cover. And that's the only thing that can pass for an original script because the original script was just those, you know, blue, yellow, green pages. All right, right. Folded up and carried in Cruz's back pocket. And and who was the one who designed the shark? That was uh, Joe Alves, the production designer. And he's actually the first guy on the payroll. He got hired before Spielberg because Joe's job, uh, Zanuck and Brown were stingy bastards, I have to tell you. <laughs> Well, they're both gone now. You can say that. Yeah, and they 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 had Joe. Joe had a, a charge, and he had a he was under employment at Universal, uh, and they asked him to do some sketches, storyboard sketches of the shark and you know, victims, and they they used them to pitch the tower that they should actually invest in this movie and make make this film. So Joe Alves was the first one on the picture. He de- he designed the shark. He did all the research. He decided, he discovered, and they, they kept saying, we need a big shark. And and Joe discovered from his research that the, the bigger sharks get, the fatter they are. So when they said, we want a 30-foot shark, Joe said, it's going to look like, like a barrel. You know, it's just going to be a big, fat fish. So the, the optimum would be like 20 to 25 feet would be as big as you can get it and still keep it slender and deadly looking. So that's that's what he did. Joe Joe designed the shark, and a guy named Bob Matty, who was in retirement, a special effects guy, yeah, who built uh, the squid in Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Remember Kirk Douglas? Sure, this giant yeah. squid. Yeah, Peter you know, the guy who built the guy who built the squid built built the, built the shark. You know, reading Jaws, your, your book, and we have to plug, uh, this is the expanded edition. Yes, and, and both Gilbert and I read this way back in the day. The Jaws Log, which is terrific, yeah. and one of the best books, uh, not just for Jaws fans, but one of the best books about making a movie yeah, that, you, I, I'm, that, I'm that you'll ever want to read. That. I'm very proud of that. Yeah. You should be. I, and, and reading it, you know, you realize how many, and of course Spielberg gets the, gets the lion's share of the credit, I suppose, well, but how many sure. her, heroes that Bob Maddy and Joe Alves and yourself yeah, and yeah. Verna Fields and Bill Butler and how many people are uh, uh, great artists yeah, and, uh, and, are and the, and the, her, I, heroes of this picture. 
And at the time, everybody was, it, it's like a triumph of the studio system. And you know, all those people were kind of under contract and we were making this movie on location and everybody was just, it was a difficult shoot. It was a long ways from home. Maybe we were over budget, over schedule. And everybody just soldiered on and tried to make the best movie we could. Who knew? And, yeah, who knew? And, and, and what happened, the look of the film and how uh, Spielberg wound up directing it was because the shark didn't work. Yes. We built built this shark, and it was only t- there wasn't any time to hardly any time to test it. So before they put it on the on the trucks and shipped it off to New England, it was it was built or fabricated here in Hollywood. Uh, they tested it in fresh water, and it seemed to work. And then when they got it and put the rig in, it's a complicated understructure that you can't see that's the steel rails and stuff when they, as soon as they put it in salt water you know electrical circuits fried things started corroding you know aluminum turned to, to, to dust and it was a, a huge effort just just to keep it just to keep something in front of the camera that looked like a shark right in part because because spielberg was determined not to shoot in a tank on the lot but to but right. to, but to shoot it in the water to yeah, shoot it and, at, and, at sea and Zanuck and Brown, who were both, you know, products of the industry, when they were putting the project together, they just assumed that somewhere in the world there was a shark wrangler who they could get who would tra- who would train who would train a shark to do Unbelievable. two two or three stunts. And of course, they they had to be disabused of that notion very quickly. <laughs> Gilbert and I were talking today, and it's about the problems that beset the film. And it's not just the mechanical shark; it's the it's the teamster stuff. It's the weather. It's people who were stealing equipment. Yes. It's the the boatmen went on strike. I mean, every possible thing that could have gone wrong. You guys must have felt like you were cursed. Well, you know, there's an iconic line from the movie because you know you're gonna we're gonna need a bigger boat, right? right? Of course. Now, the, the, the way – for 20 years, I wouldn't take credit for that line. I said, you know what? Roy probably improvised it on the set, you know, more power to him because I wasn't on the set that day. Uh, then I – one of the fans, of whom there are many, pointed out to me that on the Blu-ray edition of the DVD or the extra materials, there's an interview with, with Roy Scheider, who was still alive at the time. And he said, oh, no, that was in the script. So I said, oh, they Hooray for me! I did, I didn't know I wrote that, <laughs> and then and then it turned out it had been in the script because they when they started shooting they had this the SS garage sale it was just a barge with all the equipment on it and things would fall off and it was it wasn't steady and it was a piece of crap because Zanuck and Brown were stingy <laughs> and they 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 avoided renting the support boat that they should have gotten which was a big ocean going tugboat based in Martha's Vineyard, skippered by an old salt, you know, on the vineyard. It's called the the Whitefoot. And finally, when the crew was at, you know, rebellion point, uh, uh, you know, because they kept saying, we're going to need a bigger boat. You know, this the, the, the boat, you know, we've got the Orca, but we need a bigger boat for the, you know, for the crew, to for the uh, for the cast to have a lunch, you know, it was, uh, and to help buffet, the picture boat, you know, against the wind, you know, so, so like, so when anything broke in the first few weeks of filming, they would say, we don't need a bigger boat. Try to, trying to convince Zanuck and Brown. And Roy used that line 
in a lot of different scenes. He, said, he kept saying, we're going to need a bigger boat. But he said it at the perfect place in the movie, so it became an iconic line. But it was based on reality. We did really need a bigger boat. And, and, and halfway through <laughs> filming, they, Zanuck and Brown finally bit the bullet and, and hired the right boat. You heard him? Slow ahead. I can go slow ahead. Come on down and chump some of this shit. funny that through the shark not working spielberg tried hiding the shark yeah. which made it scarier well wasn't yeah. that wasn't that something you guys were channeling uh, the <laughs> thing one of your favorite yeah, movies not, not 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 even channeling we both were you know when we were you know, scratching our heads figuring out what you know we don't have the shark today what are we going to shoot you know what what scenes are left of, with dialogue um when we were going through all that, uh, we both said, you know, in the th- we both knew the thing, you know, the, the, not, by the way, we should say not John Carpenter's the thing, but the original the, Howard the Hawks. Christian Nyby Howard Hawks. Uh, yeah, that thing. thing. Right. With that J- thing. With James Arness as a carrot. <laughs> J- J- James yes. Arness as, <laughs> yeah. as a giant defrosted carrot, right. yes. So, so, so uh, we both were very well aware of that film, and we knew that, you know, unseen horror is even scarier than visible horror. Uh, kind of like in, in, in even in Psycho, you know, where you you don't quite you, you never see the killer and you hardly see the stabbing. You think you see it, but Hitchcock is such a whiz that you know. So we were well aware that an off-screen shark could be as as ominous or more so than an on-screen star. And of course, Stephen did that incredible opening death scene with the uh, with the actress uh, Chrissy, um, and. And then we had to think of other scenes like the guys, the guys on the dock and all, you know, scenes where you, you can see what the shark does, but you couldn't see the shark. You know, you see a, a leg, severed leg floating down, trailing blood in the water and you know, stuff like that. It's so smart. So, you guys had such good instincts. And, and it's kind of like some, a lot of the movie is not a fear of sharks, but a fear of the ocean. Yeah. Yeah. But he keeps giving you that point of view shot yes. of, 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 of the water. And, yeah, and, that, it's, and it's like that first girl who gets killed. Yes. You don't see a shark. You don't see what's happening. Yeah. But you That's go, something horrible is happening to this girl. 
Yeah, and then and then when you actually see the remains at, at the morgue, it fits into a little like a little cat box, a little yes, busboy's tray. That's all. <laughs> that's all that's left of her. That we that we really thought that was a real subtle, horrible way to say a human being. You know, because the 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 doctor opens the door to the morgue. You know, to the refrigerator where they keep the bodies, and you're expecting you know a body bag to come out, and it's a you know it's a it's a tray with what's you know with a hand spoofed <laughs> in a very left. funny way by John Belushi in the first yes uh, yes <laughs> first <laughs> where he's, this was no boating accident <laughs> chewing the scenery in his Dreyfus <laughs> impression let's talk about the casting a little bit because it's all sure. in the Jaws log and it's it's fascinating did uh, did Richard Dreyfus who you knew yeah as Ricky Dreyfus you had you yes. had history you had worked with Carl Reiner in the committee uh, right. excuse me uh, Rob Reiner uh, uh, yeah in, in, Rob the was in the committee they grew up together. Uh, yeah, and Robin, Robin, Richard, and uh, a couple others had a little improv group of their own in L.A. <clears throat> They'd come up and hang out at the committee and watch us, and then go back to L.A. and work on their show. <clears throat> so you know, we had a we had a history, and uh, he had passed on the script. He had told uh, his agent, you know, this is a movie I'd rather see than be in. And so I got when I when I got to Boston with Stephen, we still did not have Hooper, and we didn't have Quint. We're with how still, many days to go? About fifteen days before start of principal photography. Wow! So uh, they reached out to Lee Marvin, who would have been a pretty good Quint, but Lee Marvin was on a fishing expedition in Baja, California, and said word back. He says, "I'm fishing now. Why would I want to go back and <laughs> pretend to be fishing?" You know? <laughs> so he, Lee Marvin passed. I was very much in favor of uh, Sterling Hayden, who was would have been wonderful. We love Sterling part. Hayden. Yeah, but he had problems with the IRS. He he couldn't work for wages because the IRS had attached his wages. He could sell. He could work as a novelist and sell his books and get royalty. But if he had a, a salary income, the IRS would grab it all. So he couldn't take it. So uh, Zanuck and Brown, in desperation, reached out to Robert Shaw, who you know was sturdy physical guy and and uh was a great actor they knew him from this because they'd made the sting yeah they knew him from the sting so uh he he agreed and he had a lot of things in his contract in 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 case they went over schedule he would owe a lot of money on on his salary so he built in a lot of penalties so he wound up making way more than dreyfus and scheider made and i so now now we so we now we're getting to close we got robert shaw and uh, I called my wife in Los Angeles. I said, you know, can you find where Richard is? I got to, you know, I got to speak to him. So it turns out my wife calls back, says, you're in luck. He's in New York. So I called Richard in New York. I said, you got to come up to Boston and meet Stephen. You know, when you turn down the script, that's a different script. We're rewriting it. I'm up here. We're going to make it a little funnier. You're going to like it. Come on up, meet Stephen. And, you know, just, you know, give it one more, one last shot. So Richard came up to Boston where we were casting and he walked in and he was dressed almost the way he's dressed in the movie. He had a, you know, scruffy beard and rimless glasses and a, a watch cap and a Levi jacket. And Stephen took one look at him and said, don't change a thing. Don't get a haircut. Don't do it. Don't, you know, if, you, if you're going to do this film, you got to do it just the way you look now. We love, I love that. And uh, so then we talked for a few hours and told him there would be comedy and while we were talking, we found a joke that's that's in the movie that plays great. Uh, 
because Zanuck and Brown were stingy bastards. Did I say that? Yeah, uh, you did. We, <laughs> say it again. <laughs> we, 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 were, we were staying at the Holiday Inn in Boston, and room service at the Holiday Inn in Boston is styrofoam. No, no China. No, no, you know, it's all plastic stuff. So, and we were living on the room service because we couldn't go out to eat. We had, to, you know, we had casting appointments every fifteen minutes all day long. So, so uh, uh, we had the remnants of our meal, and uh, Richard was was like crushing a cup. And I'm going to say we because I don't know who in the room actually said it. I'd like to think it was me, but I said, you know how that macho thing where guys crush beer cans or they break them on their head, you know, it'd be great for Hooper. You know, if, if Quint crushes a beer can, Hooper can crush a styrofoam cup. And Steven said, great, great. Put it in the script. We'll, we'll do that. And so we did. It's a great moment. And it's, and it's a good, it's a good moment. Yeah. And I heard a story that, I mean, the movie when it was being made was considered disaster. Yes. And that Spielberg went to a dinner party and introduced himself to some woman who said, oh, you're that director who everyone says your career is over now. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, he, he, it, was, it was touch and go for a while. I mean, people who had seen the film and had seen the, you know, the because Verna Fields was on location. So she was, as soon as we finished filming, you know, all the segments of, of a particular sequence, she'd start cutting it together because, you know, that's, uh, that's what she was there for. And as sequences came, started to come together, you'd see, you could see the potential in the film. And then of course, when, when it was finished, it was, it was great. But, uh, the, the, and, and at the time, you know, like nobody ever sets out to make a bad movie. If you're on the set of a bad movie, nobody's, saying this is going to be a stinker. You're, you know, you're, you're doing your best to make a good movie. And that's what happened on that picture. Everybody said, well, you know, yeah, it's, it could be a career killer, but let's, let's see what happens when it's released. Because this is an axiom for, for the movie business. Yeah. Um, no, no picture is ever as good as the dailies or as bad as the first cut. Oh, that's <laughs> profound. <laughs> it turned out to be a movie that changed American filmmaking. Yeah, and changed and changed the and changed the studio system. Changed the way movies were distributed. Changed yeah, everything. And, yeah, and and sadly, you know, it, not not uh, not for the best as that evolution has turned. In some out. ways, you know, yeah. Opening week, this obsession with opening sure. weekends and hundred million dollar grosses. And it, you can't hit a home run every time. Not Nobody for the can. best, but and hard to hold it against the film. I I remember also seeing an interview where Dreyfus. I mean, it was like he was apologizing <laughs> yes. for the movie. He said something like, well, I've got nobody to blame but myself. Yeah. I shouldn't have taken this movie. And for 40 years, he's been dining out on those John the Jaws yes. stories. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He, he, he was, uh, he, he and Roy um, went to, after a couple of weeks, I think it moved over to a big theater in Times Square, the Rivoli, or one of the you know a big Times Square movie theater. <clears throat> and there's a there's a shot of it, the marquee and everything. But Roy and Richards like snuck in after the film had started, so they wouldn't be noticed. And they watched the film and they saw the audience reaction. And the, and that was the first time they had seen it in the theater. They had only seen it in you know screening rooms. And after that, they got uh, they you know. 
they had they had to admit that it was good work. <laughs> <laughs> and it must have dawned on them at some point they were about to be stars. Yeah. I mean, Richard yeah, that, had American Graffiti had already opened, so Richard was on the radar and, and Scheider had yeah. been on the radar from French Connection, but not like this. Yeah, this was this, this, the, the, you know, it, was, it made everybody. And one of the best things uh, in the film is the, is the last bit of dialogue, which you, which you added in post. Yeah, yeah. I used to be afraid of the water. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. It's a yeah. perfect way to end the film. Thank you. <laughs> and, and you being the writer also of Jaws 2. Yes. I have to ask you, what happened to that convenient uh, uh, fishing expedition that Hooper was on? <laughs> <laughs> I just watched Jaws too. Yeah, yeah. He 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 was off on the uh, on the Aurora doing the because he didn't see Roy had a contract. He he had to do the sequel. Yeah, I, I read in the I read in an interview with you that he was none too happy. No, he he wasn't, and and. Uh, uh, and Zanuck and Brown, uh, when they got a green light, because, you know, the iron law of sequels is only the last one loses money, which is why you have, you know, Police Academy 12, Jason, you know, Friday the 13th, 10. Oh, why they you know, all ended at some point. Only the last one loses money. So there was, after Jaws, it was, it was clearly going to be a sequel. And Zanuck and Brown offered me the screenplay. They said, you, you can write the sequel. I said, great. And they said, for scale. I said, oh, God, you guys, you know, that my agent said, I can't believe that they're offering scale. And, I, and then we said, you know, Zanuck and Brown are stingy bastards. <laughs> and, and, and I turned the I, I turned job down. I said, I'm not writing it for scale. I have other things to do. I, I, I'd written Which Way Is Up. I was back, you know, doing comedies right, again. Right, working, working with Richard Pryor. Yeah. So uh, I turned them down. And I remember saying to my agent at the time, I said, tell him no. And when they come back, and I think they will, it's going to cost them. So sure enough, they started. They started with another director and his wife, who fancied herself a screenwriter, and they started shooting Jaws two. And after a week of dailies, it was obvious that this director and his recon, reconfigured screenplay were, you know, not cutting it. And it's very rare that Hollywood actually fires a director off a film that's in production. But they fired John Hancock and shit-canned his script uh, right. by his wife, Dorothy Tristan. You know, we, we name names here. We name names. <laughs> well, it's a, it's, a, it's a podcast no one's really listening to, Carl. Yeah. So they, then, they, then they, call, they called me, and I, I got what I should have gotten. And, uh, and the picture went, and, and its time was the most successful sequel until Godfather 2. So it, it, it did okay. And will are you ever planning on doing a movie on Hooper on that fishing trip? <laughs> <laughs> no, it would, be, it would be nice to revisit him. I uh, by the time we got to Jaws three, the same thing happened. They started without with a script that wasn't working, and they had to fly me in to work. One, two, and three, I did on location while we were shooting. They didn't ask me to do Jaws four for any reason. Jaws for the and Revenge. Jaws for the Revenge. <laughs> that was Michael Caine. Michael Caine, yeah. Yes, and and and, uh, and uh, to this day, I've never seen it. I have no idea well, what it's Well, there you about. go. And the shark follows the wife to the Bahamas. <laughs> yes. And, <laughs> and to the mall. Yeah. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast, 
But first, a word from our sponsor. With Jaws 3D, did you have to did you have to come up with 3D gags in, 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 in no, conceiving that, it? No, that was mostly the the uh, that was uh, Joe Alves's uh, responsibility. Joe Alves directed Jaws 3D. The, the, we Joe, point he out. directed because he directed yeah. uh, you know miles of second unit on, sure. on on two, and and he was ready to direct, and and he was the one who said Jaws 3D. He's the one who, who uh, suggested 3D, and then later regretted it because the technology was not you know, perfected. So there was a lot of problems. And we had a producer who was even stingier than Zanuck and Brown. <laughs> we had Joe uh, Dante on the show and, and we talked a little bit about Jaws 3 people nothing or people, yeah, people yeah. zero. And how, how close did that actually come to happening? I, I have, uh, uh, my first, my memory of it was that it was never more than a, you know, high concept and that they, uh, uh, you know, Spielberg and Zanuck and Brown said to the studio, "Listen, Dwight, don't mock a valuable franchise like this. You know, right. it's, it's it's good it's advice. This, you know, don't shit where you eat." Uh, and but since then, I've met Maddie. You know, I, I know Maddie Simmons, who was Lampoon. Sure. And he says he claims that they actually got about a million dollars out of Universal. They developed a script. They did some research. There is a script somewhere, yeah. And, and that apparently there is a script somewhere. I've never, I've never seen it. And uh, but ultimately, it was uh, you know the studio said, "No way are we making this film." So goodbye. And, the, and, and what I've noticed with sequels yeah. is each sequel has to unlearn every lesson they learned in the previous one. Yeah. Like in Jaws, the three things they never learned is one, there is a shark. Uh, two, they should close down the beach. And three, that they need a bigger boat. Yes. And these are three things they never learned. In each yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you have to repeat the same mistakes yes. to, to put the characters in, in the same kind of jeopardy. Like the yeah. boats were getting smaller. Yes. <laughs> if anything. Well, that, that, that was my, my, my contribution to Jaws 2. <clears throat> they were, uh, that was when the studios were obsessing on the youth market. And the script that they had was dark and, and unfunny and, and uh, not good. And but it had some teenagers in it, you know, because the Brody's kids had gotten older, and so my take on it was, okay, if you, if you're gonna put teenagers in jeopardy, which was emerging as a as a horror trope or a meme, you know, sure. it's, it, let's let's really put teenagers in jeopardy. I invented this like uh, seagoing car culture, cruising culture, where you know. People get in their cars and cruise Van Nuys Boulevard or Hollywood mm -hmm. Boulevard. You know, it was like American graffiti, you know, yeah. cruising. Um, so I said, okay, so what about if, if you're a teenager and you live on an island and everybody sails and surfs and swims, that you, you'd have a bunch of teenagers with a bunch of boats who would do things collectively. And then when the shark comes, they get in trouble. And, and uh, then the sheriff has to ride to the rescue. So so we had that. So Go ahead, Carl. I'm sorry. So, 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 the, yeah, we, uh, uh, and, and in Jaws 2, of course, we didn't have the luxury of hiding the shark. Everybody knew what the shark looked like. So we 
contrived uh, the you know the fiery explosion. So now it was not only was it a bad shark, but it was a scar-faced shark. <laughs> <laughs> so now, now now it was really mean. Uh, well, of course, it, the sequel also boasts uh, arguably the best tagline in movie history. Uh, the the best uh, um, what, what uh, yes. uh, uh, advertising just when you th- tagline just just when you thought yeah. it was safe to go back in the water right yeah. right right tell us something about Murray Hamilton we've done two hundred of these shows and he's come up we've talked about old Twilight Zone episodes and and the hustler Eddie Deason was oh. here talking about working with sure. Murray in nineteen forty one and uh, one of our favorites he, he he was a wonderful actor. Uh, in, he's in a movie called Seconds with uh, Rock oh, Hudson. Sure. Oh, sure. Frankenheimer. Oh, yeah. Uh, Rock Hudson and yeah. John Randolph. Yeah, right. And and he's he's wonderful. He's a wonderful, wonderful actor. And the, the graduate. He's, you know, he's, of course. Yes. So, um, but he he has a dr- had a drinking problem, uh, which he kept under control most of the time. But there's a story in the Jaws log in the book about... He went out one, you know, he was out drinking one night and crossed the path of a skunk on the way. Oh, back yeah. Out. It's one of the good stories in the book. He, he went to pet it. He thought it was a dog. Yeah. yeah was a puss, pussycat, a little black and white pussycat. Oh, oh pussycat. Excuse me. So, so he got com- properly skunked and, you know, and he came into the hotel and fell asleep in the lobby and everybody, you know, the night desk clerk would go, what's that? Jeez, what's that? Oh, it's Mr. Hamilton. He's so... So they had to burn his clothes and put him to bed upstairs. And uh, but but the next day he was you know he had you know, he was always uh, he always had it together on the set. You know you, you could never tell that he was drinking. He played that corrupt bureaucrat as well as anybody. Oh yeah, he just had that kind of uh, maybe a Spielberg as I suppose always had an eye for casting. But boy, he's just perfect. Was he the first that, actor cast? Uh, one of the first. Yeah. I think Roy was the first principal cast. Roy was I think. the first principal. And, and Murray, I think. I think. And Lorraine and Lorraine Gary. Yeah. A lot of great stories in the Jaws log. And and another drunk on the set (laughs) was Robert Shaw. Oh, boy. Hollow legs. (laughs) Yes. Well, he's in that great British tradition of, you know, uh, Richard Harris and uh, Tom Courtney. Uh, Peter O'Toole. Peter O'Toole. Yeah, they could all bend the elbow. Yeah, they were all a tradition. Yeah, Shaw, Shaw... The, the the famous you know Indianapolis speech uh, that was shot over a period of two days and the first day uh, he put whiskey in the teacups and and was really drinking and by three in the afternoon he was you know shit faced he could you know remain started improvising around the speech and he had largely crafted that speech from Sackler's work and he he was you know totally messing it up. And Stephen was very understanding, and, and he, when when they wrapped at the end of the day, he apologized profusely to Stephen. He said, "I'm sorry. I realized I, you know, I thought I could do it, but I." Uh. And Stephen said, "Don't worry. You know, we got lots of film. We're back. We're back on the set tomorrow. We'll do it again." And he pressed, and Shaw said, "I promise, not a drop until we wrap." And he, the second day, he shot it cold, cold sober, and the genius of. Um, uh, Verna Fields is editing is that there's uh, shots from the drunk day and there's shots from, from the sober day and you can't tell. Oh, that's fascinating. Unless you look at it on Blu-ray very closely, if his eyes are a little watery, that's the drunk day. If his, <laughs> eye, if his eyes are dry, that was the day that he did it sober. Sometimes that shark, he looks right into you, right into your eyes. 
You know the thing about a shark? He's got lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eye. When he comes at you, doesn't seem to be living until he bites you. And those black eyes roll over white and then... Oh, then you hear that terrible high-pitched screaming. The ocean turns red and in spite of all the pounding and the hollering, they all come in and they rip you to pieces. She must have used the cutaways to 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 yeah, shy, to yeah. Scheider and and Dreyfus exactly to break to break them up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Had to, yeah, she had to do that. Yeah, there's so many good stories. I was starting to say in the Jaws log, which we want people to get, and want our listeners to get. Uh, and we will, well, maybe we'll come back to them at the end. But this, you know, the story about Steve Spielberg leaving the island is is wonderful. I, I was telling Gilbert on the phone how he beat a hasty retreat. Robert Shaw drinking with Thornton Wilder. Yeah. To, to, to all hours of the night, full of great stories. But let's you ask. Know, go ahead. Spiel, you know, Spielberg to this day um, follows that uh, pattern. The last shot of the film, the last shot of the production, he's not there for that. He's gone. He's gone. And obviously, he, not the rap party. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, he set he sets up the shot, get rehearses it, gets it all ready, and then he then he leaves. And I'm, and, I'm told. And I heard Robert Shaw was like a real bastard to uh, <laughs> Richard Dreyfus. Yes, yes, he was. He, you know, Richard was you know Beverly Hills high school guy who had done two movies and and a lot of television. You know, Richard played the little Jew in Gunsmoke. If there was a oh, Gunsmoke he's in Bewitched. Yeah, yeah he, he turns was, up he on a bunch around. of stuff. Um, and uh, and Shaw, of course, was a real actor. And a real writer. He's got five published novels. He wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning play called The Man in the Glass Booth. Sure. And he was, you know, he was the real deal. And uh, and he would tweak Richard, you know, just, he would do things like, you know, how they, they uh, when they're shooting Richard's close up and, and Shaw is off camera, just as they put the sticks in, just before they clap the sticks for Dreyfus, Shaw would like lean in and say, mind your mannerisms. <laughs> Did he say something about Paul Muni? Like, Jew, Jew, if Jew actors come back into vogue, or you, you might have a future. Does this ring a bell? I, 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 it doesn't, but I, I'm sure that some, uh, sneaking in some anti-Semitic cracks and he could, he could, he could do that to I, get his I goat. Think, yes, with 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 all affection, because he knew you know, Dreyfus was aggressive. You know, patently Jewish. You know, Duddy Kravitz. You know, can't get right. More of course, Jewish Gilbert that. loves that picture. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. It's, a, yeah. it's a great yeah. film. Let's let's ask you. We started to talk before we turned the mics on about something. Speaking of directing, something Gilbert and I are extremely fond of that you directed, and that is because we had Ed Begley here a couple of weeks ago, and Gilbert and I were gushing about his his brave <laughs> performance in the Son of the Invisible Man and the very uh, criminally underrated Amazon Women on the Moon. Yeah, and you you did that with him. Your, your yes, friend Gary uh, Goodrow turns up in it. Yes, and Larry Hankins in it. And Larry too. Hankin, who you went who you went to school with. But boy, yeah. that is a and I, and I was, Gilbert and I were saying it's it's directed by somebody who had obvious affection for those Universal horror pictures. Yes, it, yeah. You're really convinced you're watching a '30s Universal horror. You got everything but Una O'Connor in there. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The 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 the, uh, the camera guy. Totally got it, you know. He he lit it for black and white, you know, and and uh, <clears throat> it it was just, just 
just fun, you know, and, and, you know, you can't move the camera too much because in the 30s they didn't have very sophisticated dollies and cranes. They, if you did a dolly shot, you'd have to be pretty, you know, pretty circumspect about it. So, you know, I, yeah, I, I really, I did my homework. I watched the James Whale movies. Yeah, it's so you know? faithful. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, and it wound, the thing I like about it, it wound up being the key art for the poster campaign. They did that. Right. The other, the other thing I directed for that, uh, it's an anthology for, for the listeners. Uh, Amazon Women on the Moon is an anthology picture with five directors. Yes, find it, Lee. I will say to our listeners. Yeah. And and uh, there was one that didn't make the initial cut, but is in the DVD. Of, uh, it's it's a uh, checkoff on uh, checkoff on wires. It's a fly, it's a flying version of a checkoff play <laughs> in which in which. <laughs> The, the Russian nobility are sipping tea at a dasha in the countryside, very very Chekhovian, but uh, two or three of the ca- characters fly. They you know they they come they fly in on wires, they fly out, and they make entrances and exits on, on wires. And that was, was restored uh, for the DVD because I haven't yeah, seen it since the movies. I think it's on the DVD. Oh, got to yeah, get my yeah. hands on that. And, yeah. And just getting back for a second, did Shaw and Dreyfus ever get along with each other? During the uh, no, they 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 uh, uh, they had an, an ongoing uh, and you know rivalry animosity. Uh, uh, Dreyfus got back at Shaw. But Shaw was, I think, smoking at the time or drinking. I think it may, may, may have been on a lunch break when Shaw was having a a shot of whiskey with lunch, and he said, "No, this is this is really a bad habit. I should I should stop it." And Dreyfus said. That's easy, and took the shot glass out of his hands and threw it over the side, which caused a gasp from the crew because you don't take you don't take a man's drink and throw it away when he's still drinking. But Dreyfus did that, and uh, it, it, it it didn't make them love each other love that, each other any much anymore. You it know, could have the, only helped on screen because there's 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 animosity in the relationship. Oh yeah, between Hooper and Quint. Yeah, that that tension is uh, that tension is there, and 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 it works. You know, it works so well for the story that uh, you know when 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 Scheider says, you know, when we get out, you're not going to do this when we're out there, are you? You know, the fighting with each other. Yeah, he, yes, we are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the perfect. This is the perfect dynamics. Uh, and again, speaking of you directing, Carl and Gilbert and I both watched this. We've both seen it, but we watched it again yesterday. Is the uh, wonderful absent-minded waiter. Oh yeah, that works with, with you. It's just great. Seven minutes of bliss. It's just like a mini Steve Martin film. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was originally. I guess he wrote it as a sketch for Sonny and Cher. For uh, I guess for it may have been not for himself. I think uh, it was probably for Sonny. People forget he uh, was a, he was a writer on many sketch shows. Yeah, including yeah, he, the Smothers he, Brothers with you yeah, and, and Glenn yeah, Campbell. That, yeah, that's where we met. Um, so. He had written it, and and uh, uh, when we were at Paramount, when we we'd gotten the contract to do the jerk at Paramount, the guy was David Picker, who was president of Paramount at the time, actually understood Steve. He got Steve, and and saw that he was going to be a big star, so he signed him to the studio for like a three picture deal, and as part of that, he said, you know, in the old days, if I was running a studio and we had an up and coming comic like Steve. We'd put him in a couple of B pictures as a comic sidekick, you know, Jack Oakey or some, you know, some, some semi-funny person. 
and but the so the screen audience would get to un, you know get to know the guy and then then when he was ready you'd give him a vehicle to star in well the studio system and those kind of releases don't exist anymore but picker's genius was okay we'll make a short and we'll attach it to i think it was going to go out with greece because we know greece is going to be a big picture and if we give the short to the exhibitors for nothing, we just spl- splice it on so when they run Grease, they'll run the short. Then the film audiences who are coming to the theaters to see a big movie, they'll see Steve Martin on the big screen and they'll automatically accept him as a movie star because it's more thinking. Yeah, at the moment he was, he was a, a, a comic and he was starting to play big rooms like the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in L.A. But, you know, 2,000 seaters, 2,500 seaters, he hadn't started – he hadn't become a stadium comic yet. <clears throat> it was, that was just just as he was breaking. And then uh, – so he he said, well, we'll do the short subject. And, Carl, you're – you know, you and Steve are writing. You know, you, you can direct it. I said, great, because I was hoping to direct the movie when it came out. So I, I – I, did as good a job as I could on the short, which was great. I mean, you know, we call we got our, our friends to be in it: uh, Terry Gar and, and Buck Henry, and some of the some committee people in the kitchen and the kitchen staff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I remember, you know, we shot for a day or two, and then we were done shooting. We only had the set for two days, and I went to Daly's, and I realized it was the first big thing I had directed with, you know, with big cameras and a real crew and a real set on a real lot. And when I saw that it would cut together, I was kind of walking, we were walking back from the screening room and I basically went off where nobody could hear me and went, yeah, yeah, good. Woo. You know, I, I, I vis audibly said, yes. That's nice. Then, you had a moment uh, for yeah, yourself. Yeah. 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 And, 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 and it, and it did work out really well. It's so uh, good. You know, it, it's funny. Larry Hankin did a short subject a year later called Sally's Diner, also also a comedy, which was also nominated for an Academy Award. So I went, I was, I was a member of the Academy, and, and on the sh- live-action short subjects, they have a screening at the Academy. You vote, you have to go to the screening to vote because there's no, you know, you can't see the movies anywhere. So I went to the uh, screening at the Academy for the five live-action short subjects, and I'm watching, and, you know, Absent minor waiter plays, it gets big laughs. And then comes uh, a movie about uh, paraplegics playing basketball, uh, veteran, wounded veterans. Oh, is that Inside re- Moves, recover. Richard Donner's movie? It was what, the, what Donner's movie was based on. It was a I Canadian. See. I and see. It was, it was from the Canadian Film Board, which you know, kind of stacked the deck in favor because most of the shorts made in those days were made by Can- Can- you know, Canadians. So I saw the guys in the wheelchairs. I said, oh, you know, <sighs> the, 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 when it comes to comedy versus guys in wheelchairs, the guys in wheelchairs win every time. So then Larry, <laughs> so then Larry, Larry, so then Larry Hankin makes his short, which is a comedy. And we go to the screening both, you know, so we can, A, so we can vote for it. And we're watching the other shorts. And yeah, you know, they're, they're, not, you know, they're not so good. And Larry's short plays very well. And then comes uh, a short by Lynn Littman called Number Our Days, and it's about Holocaust survivors living in Santa Monica, you know, 80-year-old people with tattoos on their arms. And I said to Hankin, that's it. You know, that's it. You're, you're done. <laughs> <laughs> you know the Academy voters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, we had, uh, uh, we had M. Emmett Walsh here, 
and Bill Macy. You're the third oh, person I- we've had here associated with the uh, ga- the uh, <laughs> gas station scene. <laughs> yes, in the Jerk, which is just a wonderful piece of comedy. Yes, yeah. How, how did you guys write? I know that 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 Steve Martin and Carl Reiner were carpooling to work. And coming up with things because it was yep. during the gas shortage. How did you yep. guys sit down? What was your what was your process, you and Steve? Well, they said, uh, you know, Steve Steve approached me and uh, said, "Look, you know, you've done it. You, you did the comedy with Pryor, and uh, I'm doing a script. I have never written a movie. You know, would can we collaborate?" I said, "Sure, of course." So we we made a deal. And they gave us a little office in the writers' building at Paramount because it was still a Paramount picture at that time. And we'd show up and they had a couple of IBM Selectrics and yellow pads and pencils and nothing, you know, day after day looking at each other going, well, what about it? Uh, what if, you know, and then, and then about after like two weeks of no progress whatsoever, Steve said, well, my manager thinks it should be about money because everybody's interested in money. I said, so we said, okay, with something about money. And then Steve said, there's a line in my act that always gets a laugh, whether whether the act is working or not. It's like a saver, and I hate to use it, but you know, because as Gilbert knows, when you do something for your act in a, you know on, in media, you, it kind of gets you can't. Then when you do it in your act, they say, "Well, he stole that from his you know the, the film." So so Steve says, "I was born a poor black child," and then we that it hit us. We got wait a second. What if you were born a poor black child? What, you know, what? <laughs> how would that play out later? I mean, you you would grow up in a in a fan. So we wrote the whole first, you know, the opening scenes of with the family in the Delta Blues country in the Great. South. Uh, and so that was the first scene we wrote. And then every after that, it became a road movie. You know, he hits the road and he winds up in L.A. and uh, and then. Uh, then there was a regime change at Paramount, and the the new guys, Barry Diller and Mike Eisner, didn't want to do any Steve Martin projects. So they 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 outvoted David Picker. You were halfway yeah. through writing the script at this point. It was done. Oh, it was it done. Was, uh, no, no, it was it was uh, it was uh, it was half done. Uh huh. And they they weren't much interested in it, and it needed a rewrite. So. Uh, and I, I was unavailable or, or for some reason I couldn't work on the rewrite. So they got Michael Elias, who was another comedy writer who had really good chops and Steve you know, knew him and trusted him. So Michael Elias and Steve worked on the last, you know, the, the next couple of drafts. And then David Picker, as executive producer, made a great deal with Paramount. He said, look, you still owe us for two more movies, you know, whether, whether you make them or not. So you can either spend five or $800,000 of the studio's money on scripts, or you can give Steve clear title to the short, clear title to the screenplay that he wrote, and we'll walk away and everybody's happy. You don't have to make a Steve Martin movie, and we who want to make a Steve Martin movie can certainly place it elsewhere, which they did. They made a deal at Universal like in a minute and a half, and uh, it became a Universal picture. Low-budget comedy, by the way, like, 3.1 3.1 million or something like that. Yeah. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. Ten, how did you become Iron Balls McGinty? <laughs> <laughs> Which we were, yeah. you know, we were going to ask that, Carl. Yeah. Yes. Well, we, we were, you know, they, 
you know, they, they said, you know, do you want to be in the film? I said, yeah, you know, what, what scene? He said, well, there's a scene <laughs> that ends in a fight uh, at, this, at this fancy Beverly Hills house, which was, uh, the exterior was different from the interior. But, uh, 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 so I, I said, okay. So I showed up for my, my one day of filming as one of the four bad guys who Steve beats up. And, and uh, we, I have some dialogue in the scene, you know, walk and talk. And then, then the, the fight breaks out, and the last thing was the kick, which was kind of <laughs> nerve-wracking because, you know, the, we didn't have stunt doubles. Right. Uh, I mean, there was, there, was a, there, was fight, there was a fight advisor on the set who, like, showed— and he showed Steve how to kick me in the balls without hurting me. <laughs> <laughs> so Welcome to show about, business. Talk about trusting your fellow actor. But <clears throat> so we, we filmed the scene, you know, with a kick and, you know, he, he hops up and down, he's hurt his foot. <clears throat> and then uh, in editing, they actually found the, ca- the character didn't have a name. It was, you know, Thug 2, Thug 3, you know, the, 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 just the four guys. Uh one of whom was a stuntman and a wrestler, Gene LaBelle. Anyway, so, and, and Lenny Montana from, from The Godfather. Oh, Luca Brasi. So, uh, Luca Brasi's yeah, in, that, he's in, in there. that scene. So, so uh, uh, it was in post-production that they put in the clank sound <laughs> and, and then wrote the dialogue for the restaurant scene where, where the, the cut is, you know, you hear clank and then you cut to, uh, Bernadette Peters comforting Steve said, oh, you had no way of knowing that was Iron Balls McGinty. It's just so fantastic. <laughs> this is just, you know, this, the joke like came together over time, uh, you know, in, in, in shooting and post-production. And then one release. of the biggest laughs in the theater the first time I saw it and it yeah. stayed with me. And, and they, I heard the big disappointment to Steve Martin was, when he's singing "You Belong to Me," oh, it's such a sweet scene. Yeah, because yeah, uh, he's playing the ukulele. Yeah, yeah, he wanted it to be a touching moment. Yeah, but yeah. but uh, he said that people were like using that scene to go to the bathroom and <laughs> buy popcorn. Yeah, that's you know, that's 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 the problem. You know, I mean, it's uh, and of course, you know that. Soon after that, he became one of you know wild and crazy guys, right? And, and you know the, that you know, and then he burnt out on performing comedy. I mean, soon after that, when he was doing stadium shows, he played out the season and just didn't perform live again for ten years. I mean, he just burnt out on it. Yeah, wanted to do different things. By the way, only a couple of years later, he does, he makes pennies from heaven with Herbert Ross and. Uh, yeah, boy, I, I'm I'm in the I'm in the group that uh, thinks that film is uh, a sadly underrated, unappreciated. Yeah, I I'm, I was not a fan of it. I mean, I congratulations to Steve for learning how to tap dance. <laughs> oh, he's so good in it. And congratulations to uh, Chris Walken, who has one of the yeah he steals greatest, the, he steals steals the, steals his his scene great. Everybody forgot that Chris Walken was a chorus boy on he Broadway. was a hoofer, he was a dancer. yeah yeah he's a dancer. And uh, he did, did a great job. Did Stanley uh, Kubrick love the jerk? Do you know, you know anything I, about this? I have no idea. I'd heard I, that I, he wanted to work with Steve Martin because he loved the jerk so much. Well, sadly, nobody ever told Steve. Interesting. <laughs> I, I heard that Christopher Walken, 
his dream in life really was to just be a song and dance man. I I, I think that's true because he, you know, if if you've ever, I mean, my first job in the in the the theater was in, you know, in summer stock in college where we were doing musical theater. You know, I, I, I was a stage manager and I played small parts. But there's something infectious about, you know, Broadway musical theater that you could, if you do that successfully, you, you don't want to do anything. You know, any, anything else is, is not as much fun because it's every night is a new audience Every night you get, you know, you get this adulation from from a live audience, this incredible positive feedback. Uh, it's it's uh, the one thing I haven't done is is Broadway. I've done you know almost everything in show business, but the Jaws log is currently we're, we're negotiating an option for someone to do it as a Broadway musical. How I bizarre. Have, <laughs> I, have no idea, I have no idea how this they're going to do it. This has to happen, Carl. I don't know what the musical numbers are going to be, but it's it's a reputable composer-lyricist team who've had hit, head shows on Broadway, and they think they can do it. So more power to them. I mean, I can't wait because I want, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but don't we all want at that moment, you know, Five minutes, Mr. Gottfried. Orchestra's in the pit. <laughs> That's usually when Gilbert panics and, and wishes the theater would flood. Yes. Ma- so he doesn't Ma- have to go on. Maestro's in the pit. Orca- overture, five minutes, mister. Uh, uh, you know, uh, Gilbert, you, know, would you, you wouldn't have mind cor- cannibalizing your act to put something, to make a movie from, from one of your stand-up bits. Oh, yeah. As Carl was saying that, that Steve did with the black, uh, born a poor black child. Yeah, but but I know I know that feeling, definitely, where you yeah. think... Okay, now when I go up, they're gonna all go. All right, yeah, I heard that joke already. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's a, it's a cross comics have to bear. I mean, when when uh, we were doing the Smothers show, we had like four working comics on the staff: Murray Roman, Steve, uh, Bob Einstein was was funny, uh, John Hartford was a performer, I was a performer, and uh, and the Smothers, of course, had been a nightclub act for twenty years by that point, and. There was always this moment where, you know, nobody in the writer's room can come up with a gag and you, you need a joke or you need a blackout for a sketch. And, you know, somebody who is a performer goes, all right, you know, here's something that, you know, I, I know this works because, you know, it's in my act or I've heard, you know. And then, you know, you painfully give it up and then it, it becomes, belongs to the ages after that. It's no, it's no longer yours. Especially if some other actor delivers the line, that's 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 the worst part. They get the credit for being funny. You it's were di- you were you discovered by by uh, for lack of a better word by Dick and Tom when you were performing yeah. in L.A. live with the committee. Yes, yeah, well, we were at the Tiffany Theater, right up on the Sunset Strip, six nights a week, two shows a night, three on Saturday. It was it, that that was a, a wonderful time. You know, a lot of people came to a lot of people came to see the show. Uh, and, and and it was fun to do. I mean, this, it was uh, Los Angeles in 1968, right after the Summer of Love and all of that, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And what a great writing staff. Yeah, that was. I mean, was, Lorenzo Music and Einstein, who we had here, who's nuts. Yes. <laughs> and then Mason Williams and Alan Bly. And, and uh, I don't know if Pat Paulson was in the writer's room, too. Well, a guy, a guy named Cecil Tuck who wrote with Pat was Pat's writer in the room who would do, you know, the he specialized in the, in the Paulson monologues. 
so Cecil Tuck, yeah, and and, uh, and John Hart, John Hartford was a great instrumentalist and a solo performer in his own right before. Uh, same, not not like Glenn Campbell, but he he was a, a talented on stage performer. And and Steve too was and, was, and, was and of course Steve was on that writing staff. You described that that experience on the Smothers Brothers show as all highs, no lows. Yeah, thirty million yeah. viewers a week. Yeah. It's kind of inconceivable now that you know the kind of numbers that in the three network universe. If you were a top ten show, you know, like let's say 30, 30 million viewers a week, you 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 became part of the culture. You st- stuff that you did would wind up, you know, part of the culture. People would be sure. People would quote your own lines back. Water cooler Treva, show. Yeah, Treva Silverman once said uh, she. She was a very successful writer on uh, at MTM. Treva wrote the Chuckles the Clown episode of uh, Dick the, the Mary Tyler Moore. The Mary, Mary Tyler Moore show. <clears throat> and once time, Treva was a New Yorker who traveled, commuted back and forth, you know, flyover country. But one one trip, she decided to get off the plane in Denver and rent a car and like see America for a little while because she had some time on hiatus. So she. Gets off the plane, rents a car, and before she gets out of the rental car lot, you know, ten people have said to her, um, "Sorry about that." They they're, they're doing you know Max uh, Max get smart. smart. Yeah, they're, they're doing get smart lines. They're doing Mary, oh Mary. You know, they they were doing lines, and and she fled back to L.A. and said, "Oh my God." We're telling them what to say. <laughs> That's unbelievable. I don't know what to say until we write it. And then uh, she just came back with a, you know, convinced that the media had too much power. And you you said you don't believe comedy could be taught. Yeah. it's By the time you know what a sense of humor is, it's too late to get one. <laughs> you know, you're either, somehow you're either funny or you're not. And you you can learn like the craft. I mean, you can teach somebody you know to do things in threes or to hold for hold for a laugh. You can teach them mechanics, but to be inspired to do it, create it, is uh, one of the unknowables. You like know, an ear, like are, having an ear for music, maybe. Yeah, Just something yeah. you're born with. Yeah, or 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 that you learn it at such an early age. It's you know you. Cause I don't know how you would. <laughs> if they allowed this kind of experimentation, if they gave you a three-year-old and said, make, make a comedian out of this person, <laughs> what would you have to do <laughs> to have, <clears throat> for, the ne- <clears throat> for the next 10 years <clears throat> to make that kid funny? I mean, you know, it's, a, it's a, you know, it would probably be cruel. I mean, I, I imagine. I, I would imagine so. You know, when, uh, on a great, this, what a great ahead. problem. I, I mean, just, Gilbert, we should ask our friends, if you were given an infant and, and told to, to make a comedian out of him or her, how would you do that? I think your son is becoming a comedian. Yes. I think you're going to deal with that. My my son, once my son learned the word penis, that, become, that became his punchline for everything. <laughs> Carl, what a chicken... Why did the chicken cross the road? Because it had a penis. 
<laughs> it works. Ask you about some of these guest stars on the Smothers Brothers show because oh, yeah. you, you because obviously the the show was it was you were you guys were on top of the world. <laughs> we talked about it. it was a water cooler show. It was a show yeah. on everybody's lips. Jonathan Winters, Moms Mabley, Liberace, Jack Benny, Woody Allen, uh, George Burns, M- Mickey Rooney, Don Rickles. Any anything stand out? Any well, any any story about anybody? Uh, Liberace was great because he was a very serious showman. He understood showbiz, and we had a you know we had a sketch where uh, uh, Bob Einstein plays the first appearance of Officer Judy. Oh, Officer Judy, know? yeah. Who, who uh, stops uh, Liberace from playing the piano and says, you know, you're, you're doing the minute waltz in 48 seconds. You're, you know, you're going too fast or something. It was a speeding ticket for playing too fast. And we were worried that Liberace was all full of himself and, you know, was doing Las Vegas and it was, you know, that guy. And boy, he was, he was first at rehearsal. He was, you know, pure show business. He understood his responsibilities. He understood his character as being kind of flamboyantly out there. Uh, and, 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 you know, off stage, he wasn't nearly as camp as he was on stage. Uh, so, you know, you got to see, you got to see in a variety show where people are doing, sometimes doing things outside their comfort zone for a laugh. Um, you can judge a lot about a character, about an actor. If, if, if they would play outside their comfort zone and let somebody else get the laugh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and then, uh, some some never got it. You know, some some were very full of themselves. And, and and I heard like they say the Smothers Brothers came at a perfect time because all the old greats were still around. Yeah, and when oh, they yeah. accepted the Smothers Brothers, the older audience said, "Oh, okay." Yeah, that's what yeah. Bob. That's what Bob said. Yeah, the, the, yeah, Because yeah. the first two seasons, were, which before the brothers inherited the show, you know, when they when they had uh, uh, some network approved producers and and uh, like that, uh, the network wanted you know television stars to do the show, and I guess they they they. Uh, um, they insisted on it, and the Smothers Brothers would reach out, and they would get people like Jack Benny and, and George Burns to do the show. And the Sunday Night Bonanza audience, which was the audience that we took by force, Bonanza was the number one show, and then the Smothers Brothers came on the air and knocked them out of the number one slot. So that Sunday Night audience, which is especially in 1966, 67, 68, the Sunday night was the most watched night of television. Eight o'clock was the prime, you know, that was the Ed Sullivan slot. Uh, the, it was uh, uh, it was great to, to have a comedy show in, in there. So, yeah, having the established stars on made it acceptable. And then once once they became accepted, then they became, then they were just, you know, adorable scamps. <laughs> Did you work with Groucho when he hosted a music scene? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was that experience like? Well, David Steinberg was a Groucho groupie, right? And he want he he desperately wanted the part. There was a, a musical called Minnie's Boys, 
That was, oh, sure. Uh, that was about the Marx Brothers. We just and, had uh, Peter Riegert here, who was in the New York production. Yeah, and and Steinberg wanted that part, and he never got it. But he was, but he was a Groucho groupie, and he, you know he wanted to have him on the show, and uh, we had the and Groucho was you know tentative, but he agreed to meet with the writers and David. So we went over to Groucho's heart, uh, house to to pitch him on doing the show, you know, trying to get him to agree. And that was when Aaron Fleming was taking care of him, and he was he was frail, and but still very funny. And we were admiring the posters on the wall because he had all this souvenirs of a career in show business. You know, pictures of the of the Marx Brothers with the King and Queen of England. You know, just just all this wonderful memorabilia. And we're looking at it, and we're gawking. I mean, we go, wow, you know, who, who, whoever thought. And Groucho murmurs an aside to the two guys, writers, myself and one of the other writers, who were just within earshot. He said, because we were saying, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And Groucho said, I would trade it all for one good erection. <laughs> <laughs> this is a great story. And I heard Tommy, Tommy's mothers didn't get along with, uh, was it the president of the network? Bob Wright at CBS. Yeah, that, when we were canceled, it was half of it was, you know, the network's uh, concern with progressive politics and us, you know, being against the war in Vietnam and doing that, you know, all being activists and all that. <clears throat> But the unsung half of, of, of that conflict was that Tommy and uh, Bob Wright, who was, I think, the head of programming at CBS at the time, really, you know, disliked each other as people. And when CBS had to cancel the show, they had to do it on some bullshit contractual terms because it you know, personal taste didn't matter. You know, if Tommy was ignoring Bob Wright's notes and not taking his calls, there was nothing Wright could do about it except cancel the show. <clears throat> and, and the the distrust level was so high toward the end of the uh, series that uh, Tommy, you know, the, and the network had a very, very heavy hand in editing the show. I mean, if they didn't like something, they would just take a meat cleaver to it because two inch high band tape, which is how the show was recorded was, it was very difficult to edit in those days. And, and you didn't want to edit a show. You would, you could cut during a blackout, but you know, to edit in the middle of a scene was difficult and obvious. And the network would just do some clumsy, awful edits. So in order to prevent the network from tampering with the show, Tommy read the contract very carefully. And there's uh, in every contract, there's what they call delivery terms. You know, you will deliver a two-inch high-band master tape with these technical qualifications and, you know, so many at such and such a time. So Tommy figured out that he could get the, if he could get the tape to New York on a Friday, Friday night, for Sunday air, he was within the limits of the contract. So he would hold back the show. He wouldn't show it to the network. He wouldn't preview it. And we had a guy, an intern, whose principal job was on Friday morning. They'd give him the tape in the editing bay, and he'd hand-carry. They'd buy him a ticket to New York. He'd fly to New York, 
take a cab to NBC and deliver the tape of Sunday's show. And that drove the network crazy because of course the the only thing that they did was the only thing they could do was they could preview it on closed circuit for the affiliates and in the red states and you know all the you know how sh- how shall I describe them the the mouth breathing knuckle dragging Neanderthal cousin fucking red state people would look at the show and if they saw something they didn't like. They would instruct the transmitting engineer to turn the sound down on Sunday night so that the audience, you know, go, what? You know, they wouldn't hear it. And then they'd turn the sound back up and nobody would know. Everybody would think it was their TV set or it was a glitch. But it was the net was that was the only way they they the red state conservatives could could censor the show. Did you know that, Gilbert? No. You were actually turning the volume down on the transmission. Yeah, that that came out in the trial because when 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 the Smothers uh, sued CBS for for you know wrongful termination, CBS's defense was well you weren't satisfying the delivery requirements you know you were in breach of contract, and in the depositions and in the in discovery phase they they learned that uh, the network was doing this to uh, having the transmitting unbelievable. And do that stuff now. Now let's get to Caveman with Ringo yes. Starr <laughs> yes. and Jack Guilford. Yeah, and, Jack, and Avery, Avery, and Schreiber. Avery Schreiber, uh, Shelley Long. It was a yeah, great, great Dennis Quaid. Dennis yeah. Quaid, yep. great cast. Yep. Yeah, I mean, uh, we Gilbert and I were talking about it. I mean, a, an ambitious undertaking to try was. to not only make a comedy out of One Million Years BC, but to but to not use dialogue for ninety yes. minutes. Yeah, that was that was a challenge, and. <laughs> Uh, when after the movie came out, uh, a French director named Jean-Jacques Arnaud made a movie of Clan of the Cave Bear, which was also about prehistoric man, you know, with Daryl Hannah playing the, the cave Oh, yeah. Girl. Yeah, yeah. And they made a big deal about having Anthony Burgess do the script, and, you know, he was an expert in linguistics, and he could they invented a language. So I, I, I went to see a screening of it, and the director was there. It was a... Uh, you know, New York screening. So I went up to Jean-Jacques and I said, you know, uh, I had a similar problem that you have, and you know, because there was no language and we have to f- make a movie without language. So I had to invent a language also. And he just turned his back on me and walked away. Because <laughs> <laughs> he was a serious filmmaker. I see. You're and, only a comedian. And, and I was, I'm only a comedian. I was, right. I, was, I was just doing a funny film. And yet... <clears throat> John Matuzak, who was a, a a a natural actor, he was a you know football player, of course, a, a great football player, but he was also a natural actor. He got it. He he could do gibberish, you know, atuka lunda lana. He could do that stuff and make it sound like dialogue. It was he had he had that knack. And and it's from that movie that Ringo married Barbara Bach. I, yeah, I you were hooked, a matchmaker, Carl. I've I've been a matchmaker on two movies. Uh, on Doctor Detroit is where uh, Dan oh Donna Aykroyd Dixon right Don, met, met Donna Dixon and very, fell for her. Very and, good. Uh, and I padded her part a little bit to you know give her more to do with with Dan. <clears throat> so the, I have that. And then Ringo and Barbara both started Caveman with a different pair of partners. Uh, Ringo was going with a wonderful photographer named Nancy Andrews. And Barbara was dating some Italian industrialist because that's what Bond girls did. If you were a Bond girl, you married <laughs> right. an Italian industrialist. And she was of, I can name two 
Jewish Bond girls. <laughs> She's one of them. Barbara Bach. And Jane Seymour. Very good. <laughs> he, he can also name two Jewish Bond villains, Carl. Ooh. Yes. Gertrude? Okay. Well, the first Gertrude. <laughs> Dr. No, Joseph oh, that's right. Weissman. Joseph, Joseph Weissman, a notorious Jew. Right. And <laughs> he was a notorious. Aren't they all? <laughs> but, and also a trick one, Yafit Kodo. I didn't, you know, I didn't know that the we, effort, we found out he was Jewish. Jewish. We assumed he converted like Sammy, but no, Jewish uh, from childhood. Wow, isn't that strange? Well, go figure. I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna That's write great... an auto. I want my autobiography to be called Jewish from childhood. <laughs> <laughs> well, who, who was it? There is a bi- biography. Uh, I think it's a very serious autobiography. Born this way. <laughs> you know, watching watching Caveman yesterday, and it's it 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 almost plays like a silent film because yeah. it, because it, because it, all the ga- it's a lot of visual gags, yeah, almost like Keaton's Three Ages, yeah, in, yeah, in, well, which I watched very carefully, I'm sure. <laughs> and then I remember there's a gag in Caveman where the words come on the screen one million BC, and then it says. 12.30 p.m. What well, says Tuesday, October, October Tuesday. 9th? Yeah. yeah. It, it turns out that I didn't know that, but I think that's Lennon's, John Lennon's birthday. It is. Yeah. Yeah, we thought uh, that, I thought that was an intentional homage. No, no, that was just, just a you fun know, coincidence. It was, the, it was the joke to put, to say, you know, a million years ago, Tuesday, October 30th, or whatever the date was. Yeah. And what was Ringo like to work with? You, he call, was you called Richard he, Lester for advice before you yeah, worked with Ringo? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I had been in a movie called Petrulia, which shot in San Francisco. Sure, with great Julie. movie. Great movie, and, and all the committee, everybody in San Francisco, is, for movie trivia music buffs, it's the only movie in which Jefferson Airplane and The Grateful Dead appear and play. I love that picture. Uh, so I love, you know, and I, I, I had a scene with uh, George C. Scott, and I was directed by Richard Lester, and he was a great guy. He hung around the committee, he appreciated what we did. He cast a lot of committee people in the movie. So when I, when I knew I was going to be working with Ringo, I called Richard Lester in London. I said, hey, Ringo, what can you tell me about working with Ringo? And he said, well, he said, uh, he's not a trained actor. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I get that. He said, what I did, and I suggest you do it, is use two cameras. When you're, sh- when you're shooting Ringo, you, it's going to be very hard to get him to match because he, you know, no, no two takes are the same. And you, if you want to use him, if you want to match in editing, best to have him on an isolated camera on his close-ups so you've got something that, you know, that, that will be synchronous that you can work with. So uh, I, I took the advice, and wherever I could shoot with two cameras, I had one on Ringo so uh, I could edit. And, and luckily, Dennis Quaid is preternaturally gifted at matching. He can remember exactly where his hands were and, you know, where his, how his head was tipped when he read whatever line. We did some pickups on the dragonfly scene, you know, mm-hmm. with the squishing. Yeah. We did some pickups on that scene, like, seven weeks after we shot it in a different, you know, we, we shot it in Durango, Mexico, and then we had to do a pickup, a couple of shots that we needed for editing. We did them on the back lot at Churubusco Studios in Mexico City. And Dennis, you know, so the editor comes down to the set with film clips to, you know, to show Dennis, you know, what he was doing at the time. 
And Dennis, without, you know, in the first rehearsal, just nailed it. Just did, did all the same things he did seven weeks ago physically and no problem matching. And then, and, and luckily, and I had another camera on Ringo, so I got all of Ringo's reactions. So uh, it worked out It worked out great. And then Ringo was very conscientious about, about uh, uh, if I told him I needed him to do something for camera, he would say, oh, it doesn't make any sense, but I know, I, I know the camera needs me so to do this, so I will. I will you know, I'll do that. And he, and he was a pleasure. Barbara Goldbach, that's her name. Wow. There you go, she's Gil. A, she's ah. a Barbara Goldbach, the she, Jewish she, she, Bond girl. A daughter of a New York Jewish, uh, uh, LA, uh, New York Jewish detective. Wow. Her, her dad's a cop. Even more a, interesting, a Jew yes. detective. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and his daughter's a Bond girl. <laughs> What about the great Jack Guilford? We've had a couple of people here who've worked with him. Oh, the best! And just uh, we just adore him. Yeah, he he was he was wonderful. Uh, <clears throat> we had uh, we had we were shooting in Mexico on Passover, and Jack's uh, wife organized a seder for the crew in Mexico City. So in the middle of Mexico, we were in, went up to. Some there's a suburb of Mexico City called Palanco, which is like the Jewish name. It's the Beverly Hills of Mexico City, and uh, we went to a Jewish center and had a, a real seder with Haganas and Jack Guilford and John Matusak. They all answered, you know, did the, the four questions, uh, and, and I had a connection with Guilford. Uh, with uh, Zero Mostel, uh, because they had done funny thing Form, yeah. uh, on, on Broadway. And my my uncle was an accountant who was partners with Zero Mostel's brother. It was there was an accounting firm called Gottlieb and Mostel. And <laughs> wow. <laughs> accountants. So I so I, I I kind of knew about Zero Mostel and I could talk to Jack about that. And then we talked about radio days and the blacklist. I mean, you know, he was terribly affected affected by the blacklist. Yeah. Uh, and but a, a, a sweetheart, Madeline, Madeline Guilford, that was What was that's, some that's of the I, stories he told you about the blacklist? They he, it was so Patently unfair. There was a guy who had a chain of a small chain of supermarkets in upstate New York, and it was a patriot. And he published, at his own expense, uh, a eight-page you know, flyer throwaway called Red Channels, in which he named names of commies and commie sympathizers. Oh, sure. With not much research going into it. I mean, just, you know, basically whoever he thought was a commie Lee Jew. Lee Grant was in there and got blacklisted. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he would just put their names down and say they are Reds. And Jack was having a wonderful career in radio. He was, uh, you know, on his way and, and doing very well uh, in commercials and on radio. And then one day, you know, the, the, the calls just stopped coming. And and, uh, and then somebody said, have you seen this? And they showed him a copy of Red Channels in which he was named. And he said, I may have, you know, it was New York City. Everybody went to those meetings. It was like New York in the 30s. And, you know, Russia was the great experiment. And, you know, it was uh, a lot of people were what they called premature anti-fascists because they were, 
against Hitler when a time when the only one, other people who were against Hitler were Bolsheviks. And, and you know, Lindbergh thought Hitler was the best thing ever. Uh, so there was a lot of America firsters, which was a, a movement that existed before our present. <laughs> Everything president. old is new again. Yes. I, I was always fascinated when I heard that thing uh, pre you know, like the, the, the pre-fascist. Premature anti-fascists, yeah. Yes, I mean, like, when was it too early to be <laughs> against <right>. Hitler? Yeah. <laughs> well, as you said, some of them just went to one meeting. I had a, I had a screenwriting uh, teacher who was friends with Zero, a gentleman sure. named Ar- Arno Dussault. Yeah. Um, and uh, well, he went up writing horror films in Mexico, like the Horror Express with Peter Cushing yeah. and Christopher Lee. Sure, but he, uh, but he, uh, you know, he went to a, a couple of meetings. He wasn't a communist. Uh, no, they were, uh, they were looking for alternatives. They were looking for, uh, they were looking, they were, they were interested in ideas. Yeah, it was, you know, it was, it was, there was seemed to be a lot of problems. You know, the Stalinist, the revelations of the Stalin era had not surfaced yet. You know. Lillian Hellman refused to believe it even when, when it did happen. I think Lillian Hellman was an unreconstructed Stalinist. I'm, I hear. Don't, don't, don't hold me to this. Uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, uh, the, there's a wonderful Philip Roth novel called uh, The Plot Against America where he does an alternative history where Lindbergh becomes president in 38 and, you know, wants to sign a non-aggression pact with Hitler and—, and uh, and, and 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 start rounding up the Jews in the U.S. It's 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 a very plausible, scary novel uh, about you know it it could happen here under certain circumstances. Yeah, yeah. we just lost Philip Roth too. Yeah, tell us our as we wrap it up, Carl. Uh, our our fans would be upset if we didn't ask you about working with the great Randall and the great Klugman. Oh, on the Odd Couple, they the you know again consummate prose the. Uh, Tony Randall, uh, once uh, I saw him, like, we were at the table read, because on a weekly show, the first time the actors see the script is basically, you know, it gets delivered to their house the night before the the table read, and and that's the show you're going to shoot that week. So we're at the table read, and and Tony Randall is reading, and he gets to a, a point in the script, he throws the script across the room and says, don't underline everybody goes what he says if the line or the word requires emphasis trust the actor to understand that in context of the dialogue don't tell me that this is an important line by underlining it it doesn't make it important if it's not if it's a, you know if it's a misplaced emphasis just don't don't underline don't tell me what when to underline don't tell me when to accent a word i'll find it and he was, he's very very angry about it. <laughs> he, he felt that you know we were demeaning the craft of acting by indicating with italics or underlining Interesting. The, the certain words required emphasis. He said it should be obvious from the text. How, how did you like Lugman? How did you find him? He, he was great. I mean, he, he would just you know smoke cigars and go off to the bookies you know, <laughs> between takes. I mean, he was a, he was a serious gambling guy. So they were those two characters. Very, very much. I mean, yeah, I mean, Tony Randall was fussy and meticulous, and Klugman was kind of a you know a sloppy guy. And both and, both Oscar Madisons like the uh, like yeah. the ponies and like to uh, yes. like yes. to bet. I mean, we've, you, of course, you've heard the stories about Mathau. Yeah. Uh, 
I heard, I heard that uh, Carol Mathau had to borrow money to bury Mathau oh. because he had he had uh, gone through a lot. Uh, but he's he's in Westwood Cemetery. I think he's over there. It's an expensive cemetery. He got in. Yeah. <laughs> what a wonderful actor. Carl, yeah. I hope this thing happens. Uh, by the way, we could talk to you for hours. We could talk to you about your love of pirate movies and how you, uh, you grew up in New York reading pulps and yeah. and listening to radio dramas and uh, all this all this cool stuff. Um, I hope this Jaws thing happens. I hope this this I mean, Jaws me, Log musical. It's a oh, fascinating... Me, me. Me too. Just I just want to be backstage and see the chorus girls coming down the spiral staircase, clattering in their high heels in their skimpy <laughs> costumes, and the stage manager saying, Ten minutes, please. Places for the places for the opening." <laughs> uh, so Five minutes, Miss Bryce. That's, that's the show business I signed up for fifty years ago. <laughs> I also heard you say this is interesting. The last thing I have on my card is that is that you heard Spielberg lament the fact that that he wouldn't be able to make half the movies of his favorite directors because the studio system was over. Yeah, yeah. He, I he, found he, that he, interesting. He he said that to uh, he he was uh, uh, I was writing a. a he was going to accept the Fred Zinnemann Award or something. I was I was going to ghostwrite some remarks for him. So we were chatting. You know, at, at the time we were we were still seeing each other on a more or less regular basis. <clears throat> and uh, he he told a story to me. He, he was at Fox uh, working on something, and the 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 editor, the guy who was the executive in charge of editorial, was a guy named William Hornbeck. And Stephen didn't know who Hornbeck was. And there was no IMDb at that time, so he casually mentioned. He says, "You were an editor before you became, you know, vice president in charge of editorial." The guy says, "Yeah." He says, "I, I cut a few films." So Stephen said, "Well, what films did you do?" So he started naming them. You know, High Noon, uh, Gentleman's Agreement. You know, there's just a cascade of Hollywood <laughs> history. And Stephen said, "You know, just listening to him, I realized that even." And this was after, you know, Indiana Jones and after E.T. And, you know, this was mm-hmm. after, after he, this was when he was already Steven Spielberg. He said, I, I don't have any trouble getting a movie made, but I won't have time in my life to do what these guys did when they were doing two, three movies, you know, a year. Yeah. And my, my favorite uh Unsung director is a guy named Michael Curtiz. Sure, directing. Oh, we were just yeah. talking Casablanca. about him the other night. Yeah, and if you look at Curtiz's credits, he's got like you know eighty or a hundred films, and like in the same year, he directed uh, Casablanca and Yankee Doodle Dandy. Amazing. You know who? What other director does that? You know, I mean, it's just impossible these days. Or Victor Fleming making The Wizard of Oz and Gone with yeah. the Wind, like within eighteen months, even though there are yeah. other, other directors. Well, that used to be a movie trivia joke. What do these three films have in, in common? Uh, uh, Wizard of Oz. Uh, uh, Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind. And Captain's Courageous with Spencer Tracy. Right. They were all directed by Victor Fleming. And so how come there are no Victor Fleming festivals? That's interesting. Interesting. And uh, if you look... Go, go ahead. No, no, you go. I was just going to say... Uh, you're you're still out there. You're still speaking at Jaws conventions. You're you're busy. This thing was just optioned. I also I'm, write, I'm writing a musical. You're writing a musical about ah. takes place in Australia in 1916. It's about Australian vaudeville. Wow, 
I would I would love to see that. Oh based, yeah, ba- based on a true story. My my ex wife's uncle Lou Handman was a songwriter composer in the golden age of songwriting. And in 1916, he was a young vaudeville guy who couldn't get a job on Broadway. So he and his partner, there were song and dance act. Lou played the piano and Jack Cook danced. Song boys from Songland, they build themselves. And uh, they couldn't get a job. So they stowed away on a freighter headed for the British Empire somewhere because they figured the British Empire was fighting World War I <clears throat> and there were a lot of, there was a shortage of young men. So if they went somewhere where all the young men were at war, at least they could get a job. So they were, they stowed away. They were arrested on ship. They were discovered. They were, t- they, the captain thought they were spies, German spies, because they were Jews from New York, Hebrews from New York. <laughs> So he, he jailed them as spies. They took them off the ship in chains in Auckland, New Zealand. And they said, no, no, we're not spies. We're entertainers. And they got a uh, expert witness who was a playing, who was an American vaudevillian who happened to be playing in Auckland. And he was brought into court and he vouched for them. He talked to them. He said, yeah, they're, they're, they are who they say they are. They're green, but they're not, you know, they're not spies. <clears throat> and then a guy in the back of the courtroom this is all true. It's in newspaper clippings of the period. I have the newspaper clippings. Wow. A guy raises his hand and says, uh, if you please your worship, the judge, if you will release these boys, I will put them to work in my theater. My name is Benjamin Fuller. I own the Princess Theater in downtown Auckland. So the judge said, okay. They had played the piano in the courtroom to convince. So they, they, uh, they left the courtroom. They went on stage. They were billed as the stowaways because they had made all the newspapers down under as these two guys who stowed away aboard a ship. They were billed as the stowaways. They were, they were a hit. They were held over, and then Fuller signed them to a contract, and for the next year and a half, they played all over Australia and New Zealand, and uh, Lou fell in love. And uh, when... America entered the war. Lou was a patriot, and he he enlisted. He went to the American consulate in Johannesburg, South Africa, where they were playing at the time, and signed up for the draft. In nineteen seven, late nineteen seventeen, Lou came back to America, and was sent to Camp Upton on Long Island, where Sergeant Irving Berlin was putting together a soldier show, and he was the piano player. This is great a, history. Yeah, and, and as, a, as a piano player, he, he played his, some of his songs for Irving Berlin. It's a pearl that said, who's publishing you? He says, nobody yet. So Berlin said, you come to work for me. You can be a song plugger. I need you. You're the rehearsal pianist for our big soldier show that we're doing on Broadway. And uh, sure enough, Lou went to work for Irving Berlin and uh, soon after published Are You Lonesome Tonight, which was wow. written in 1922 and debuted by my mother-in-law when she was 17 and a vaudeville star. She, she toured with her Uncle Lou. Very cool. So, so the, 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 the movie is about the, the stowing away on a ship, being discovered, becoming a star, and then leaving it to go come to America and write Are You Lonesome Tonight and a hundred other hits. But there's also are, personal history in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's I, how I f- found the story. I didn't even know there was an Australian vaudeville. No. I suppose I, it makes sense. And I can't wait to see this movie now. <laughs> yeah. Exciting. Yeah, yeah. And I'm you should me. write that autobiography, uh, Peripheral Vision, Carl, yeah. that you've been threatening to write. <laughs> yeah. 
And and I want to plug your books, The Jaws Log. I want to plug your David Crosby books, Long Time Gone. And since then, we didn't even get into that. We'll talk to you about that another time. And the little book, uh, Blue Book for Filmmakers. Yep. A handy-dandy manual. (laughs) But but I I urge our listeners, if you love Jaws, as as we love Jaws, as Gilbert and I, and don't listen to us, listen to John Landis and John Krasinski and Brian Singer and Rob Reiner and Steve Martin, who wrote the blurbs. Uh, for the book, it is it is terrific. I've read it several times. It's it's Thank arguably you. the best uh, book about the making of a film. Uh, Thank you. And uh, come back, and we'll just talk uh, Errol Flynn movies or Michael Curtiz <laughs> movies. <laughs> I'd love to. Yeah. Now you, you, Errol you guys Flynn. are fun. Yes. Thank you. Thank Errol you. Errol Flynn, so was, you. Errol Flynn hated the Jews, right? <laughs> yes. That's and he the was rumor. he was and he was from Australia. He was from Tasmania. That's right. Was and he liked best? the young stuff, too. Oh, yeah. Yes. So they, well, say, <laughs> so they well, say. Well, what was, what was that? The, his, he wanted to title his autobiography, In Like Me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Carl, so much we didn't get to. We'll talk to you about Delta House next time and, and, oh, yeah. and, and Richard Pryor. And Ken, you've, you've just done too much. And how many people, by the way, worked with a Marx brother and a Beatle? Oh, my God. Not that's many. That's right. Wow. I, 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 I never thought of it that way. It's a short true. list. It's a very short list. And Spielberg. And <laughs> so thank, thanks for coming. Thanks for schlepping. So, my pleasure. This has been Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre. And we've been talking to the great Carl Gottlieb, or as he's known to his true friends, Iron Balls. Yeah. <laughs> they couldn't even at least give you a Jewish name like Iron Balls Shapiro. <laughs> I always I always wondered if the if the Jews had gone west, would all the western states have names like, you know, Shapiro's Crossing um, <laughs> Fort, Fort Feinstein, Feinstein, you know, Gelbert, Gelbert the, you know, Gelbrecht Corners, you know, all those those names. We'll talk to you next time, too, about what you gave Stephen for Close Encounters. But I was just happy to be here for the historic meeting of Gottlieb and Gottfried. Oh, that's right. (laughs) Oh, one question before we go. I heard that Lorraine Gary's, uh, uh, yeah, Lorraine Gary's uh, uh, maiden name is Lorraine Gottfried. You know, I don't know that to be a fact, but I I, I will ask her. I don't I, I didn't uh, I always do her as Gary, but I, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, she I, married a Scheinberg. <laughs> yes, yes, she did. I I mean, I I mean, I know uh, ten thousand of our fans are gonna go. Oh well, of course, and here's the entire history. Do we have yes. ten thousand fans? Yeah. <laughs> Well, they're the ones listening who <laughs> tune in by accident. Carl, we'll let you know when it's up. Okay. And we'll we'll be in touch. Our listeners will love this one. It's just got so much stuff in it. I look forward to it. Thank you, man. Thank you. Right, take care. Have a good one. You know, while you were playing that just now, I had the craziest fantasy that I could rise up right down the end of this coronet right through here through these valves right along this tube 
right up against your lips and give you a kiss. I didn't, well, I didn't want to get spit on me. Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast is produced by Dara Gottfried and Frank Santapadre with audio production by Frank Verderosa. Web and social media is handled by Mike McPadden, Greg Pear, and John Bradley Seals. Special audio contributions by John Beach. Special thanks to Paul Rayburn, John Murray, John Fodiatis, and Nutmeg Creative. Especially Sam Giovanco and Daniel Farrell for their assistance.